Welcome to the Haunted Haulers Podcast, a place where your hosts, Wendy and April, discuss the creepy things that lurk in the misty shadows of the Appalachian Hills. I am, as always, the mysterious voice in the walls. Hey everybody, I'm Wendy. And I'm April. We want to welcome you back to a new week of Haunted Haulers, and we are sorry we've been gone for so long. It has been one of those illness after illness after scheduling conflict, but hopefully we will be back on our regular schedule every other week posting from here on out. And to make up for it, we've brought you a great one this week. Yes, this next tale comes out of West Virginia near the Allegheny foothills. The story centers around a man named Edward S. Shue. In late 1895, Shue was a new resident to Greenbrier, West Virginia. He was employed as a blacksmith for James Crookshanks, and he looked the part. Shu was a tall and muscular man who drew attention from all that saw him. He was a bachelor, although he had been married twice before. Both of his previous wives had died suddenly at young ages and under mysterious circumstances. Shortly after his arrival, he began a fast courtship with Miss Zona Heaster, and they were married in January of 1896. Their marriage started off with scandal, as Zona was only 15 years old at the time. Reverend R.R. R. Little described how he was called to the home of Mr. Shue to perform a marriage. When he got there, Mr. Shue had gone to get a marriage license, and Zona was the only one present. Mr. Shue didn't arrive back to the house until around midnight, and when he did, the marriage license was found to have been issued in a neighboring county. The Reverend didn't feel comfortable marrying them in a county other than that of which the license had been prepared, but Mr. Shue convinced him that they were close to the county line and they could all just walk down the road until they were in the right county. As bizarre as this sounds, the Reverend went along with this, and they began the marriage ceremony in the middle of the road just over the county line. However, Reverend Little's misgivings won out in the end, as when he came to the part of the ceremony where he asked if anyone objected to the marriage, he himself objected. He told Mr. Shue that he objected because the girl he wished to marry was a mere child. None of her people were present. It was one o'clock in the morning, and they were all on the Kent Country Road. A marriage ceremony is a sacred rite and should be performed under ordinary circumstances. The fact that it was all so shady left him to believe that there was something not right about the situation. He was not wrong, as he later found out that Zona had been lured away from her parents and convinced to marry Mr. Shue without their knowledge. They were married in Frankfurt the very morning after Reverend Little had refused to marry them. The following January, the newest Mrs. Shue became ill and was under the care of Dr. J. M. Knapp for several weeks. Throughout her illness, Mr. Shue appeared to be an adoring and devoted caretaker attending to all her needs. The morning of the tragedy, he stopped at a neighbor's cabin and asked if her 11-year-old son, Anderson Jones, could do some chores for Mrs. Shue. The boy's mother told Mr. Shue that he had some chores to attend to for Dr. Knapp first and couldn't go at that time. Mr. Shue came back by the cabin four times that day in an effort to get Anderson to do the chores for his wife. Finally, Jones agreed to go to the house, but when he got there, he had a strange feeling that something wasn't right. According to the story, he saw a trail of blood when he reached the steps, and when he knocked, no one answered. The door was unlocked, so he let himself in. He walked into the kitchen and found more blood and another closed door near the dining room. He knocked once again, and after no answers, opened the door and discovered Mrs. Shue's body. One account stated she was lying at the bottom of the stairs of their two-story cabin. 
Jones ran from the house and went to tell his mother what he had found and then ran to tell Shoe. Shoe was visibly upset and ran back to his house while Jones went to get Dr. Knapp. During this time, Shoe had moved his wife from the floor to the bedroom. He had placed her on the bed and dressed her body in a dress with a stiff, high neck collar and had a scarf holding it in place. When Dr. Knapp arrived, he found Shoe holding his dead wife in his arms, with her head and neck against him, crying for her to come back. Dr. Knapp tried to investigate to see if Mrs. Shoe could still be alive, but Mr. Shoe refused to let go of her head and impeded the investigation. Finally, an exasperated Dr. Knapp declared, It is an everlasting faint. Her heart has failed. The next morning, Mrs. Shoe's body was taken to her mother, Mrs. Heaster's home, to be buried in the little family graveyard. In the time before the funeral, Mr. Shoe never left his wife's body. He stayed beside her head where he had placed a sheet on one side and another garment on the other in order to keep it in place. When he left the casket, he would not let anyone go near it, not even her mother. At the time, everyone chalked his strange behavior up to the grief of losing his wife so soon and so young. However, after her daughter's death, Mrs. Heaster began to have suspicions that her daughter's death had not been an accident. She began praying for a way to know the truth of what had happened to Zona. Several days after the funeral, she was awakened by a noise in her cabin. In the darkness of the room, she made out the figure of her daughter standing in the dress she was buried in. Zona appeared about to speak, but when her mother reached out her hand towards her, she disappeared. The next night, Mrs. Heaster began praying again that her daughter would come back and explain what had happened to her, and Mrs. Heaster got her wish. Her daughter returned and began to speak with her mother, and then a third and fourth visit occurred in which she told everything about her death. Zona explained to her mother that Mr. Shue had murdered her. Mrs. Heaster was now convinced her late daughter's widower was now a murderer. There was just one problem. When she tried to explain things, friends looked at her with sadness, and authorities did not take her seriously. Mrs. Heaster's brother-in-law was the only person who believed her. He went and talked to Shue, and then to Anderson Jones, and after these conversations, he felt his niece had met with foul play. He and his sister-in-law went to Lewisburg to speak to attorney John A. Preston, who was considered one of the most brilliant lawyers of the time. Preston had heard of the story, which was now spreading in the area, but had not given much thought to it. After speaking with the Heasters, he decided to get the ball rolling. He began by interviewing Dr. Knapp, who admitted that his investigation was not very thorough and he could have misdiagnosed her. Preston decided that an autopsy should be performed and informed Shue that they were going to exhume the body. This was unheard of in Greenbrier County, and at first Shue protested, but after seeing he did not have much choice, the body was exhumed, and he was ordered to stay present during the autopsy. Dr. Knapp examined the body for days looking for evidence of poisoning or any other causes of death. He was about ready to give up, but on the third day, as he was working around her head, when Mr. Shue's demeanor physically changed. It did not take long for Dr. Knapp to discover that Mrs. Shue's neck had been broken. Upon this discovery, Mr. Shue was arrested, and Mrs. Shue was returned to her grave. The case was tried in court on June 30th. Many people came just to watch Mrs. Heaster describe the ghostly visitations of her daughter's spirit. Preston built the case with other witnesses, such as Dr. Knapp and Anderson, and then placed Mrs. Heaster on the stand. He tried not to place too much emphasis on her spectral visitations so as not to make them fantastic in nature. 
The prosecution allowed this because they felt people would find her story to be preposterous and unbelievable. However, during cross-examination, Mrs. Heaster was very adamant and clear that she had actually seen her daughter's spirit and that it had not been a dream. Shu took the stand later and tried to defend himself, but his testimony was rambling and seemingly disconnected. When it came time for the jury to deliberate, they needed only one hour to reach their verdict. They charged Mr. Shu with murder in the first degree and sentenced him to life in prison. A mob of locals were not happy with the verdict and came together intending to dole out vigilante justice. They wanted Shu to suffer the same fate as his late wife and intended to intervene on his way to the prison and hang him. Sheriff Nickel was able to reason with the mob and they broke up and even gave him the rope. Shu was taken to Moundsville Penitentiary where he died eight years later. What makes this tale so different from any other that we have presented is that the victim came back from the grave to identify the person who took her life. It was an extremely rare case, the only one of its kind, in which a judge allowed spectral testimony to be admitted to the official trial. And now it's time for the breakdown. And we promised we had a big one for you this week, so let's try to break this thing down. Um, first thing I'd like to talk about is the doctor. Let's talk about the doctor. Sure, let's talk about Dr. Nash. <laughs> so, I don't really want anybody coming to my job and judging me and what all I do and how <laughs> I do my job, but I really want to talk about the doctor and how he did his job or did not do his job. He dropped the ball a little he bit. He really dropped the ball. He didn't do a very good job at all. Well, can't look at the body. Guess she died of a heart <laughs> yeah. attack. What? She's got a big bow around her neck, a big scarf around her neck. Uh, well, guess I can't touch that. I, I wonder if it was just too much of an element of like he, he couldn't force the issue. Like he was, it was too awkward. Maybe that he couldn't. This poor grieving husband. Yeah. And he just did. He felt he, it wasn't his job, which that would not have flown today. Mm, no. Today that would not have happened, but. Okay, and then we do have, in his, in the doctor's defense, we do have Mr. Shu, who's a very large man. Mm -hmm. His first two wives died under weird circumstances. Maybe he's scared of him. It's very Maybe possible. he doesn't want to be one of his victims. And there doesn't seem to be any mention of the sheriff being around. You know, if I happened upon a dead body, I think I might also, you know, go get the authorities and not just the doctor. I love that this little boy went to his mom first. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's go tell my mom first. I do I do love that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so so the doctor, I I really feel like he dropped the ball and didn't do a very thorough investigation. Um, and and his response was, "This is an eternal faint." What kind of diagnosis is an eternal faint? Oh, this was the time period where, where if a woman read books, it might cause her to like lose her mind. She have to be put in the hospital. So <laughs> so yeah, that, that's of course you know. So yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna put this down. I, did that go down on the uh, the report as eternal faint? And she, then she contemplated the mysteries of life too much <laughs> and that, that wore her out. And so then they they buried and went on their way, and I, I guess that was that. So well, and this kind of leads into one of my questions that I wrote down. So if she if her neck was broken. She's in this eternal faint. Where the heck did this trail of blood come from? Yeah. I mean, there's a trail of blood in the door, and then all the way through the house, did nobody stop to say, huh, wonder where that came from? <laughs> and if... This was not CSI. Like, we're not <laughs> working. We don't have top brass here. We're not... <laughs> yeah. 
So, okay, let's leave the poor doctor alone for a little bit. And, you know, let's go to the family members. Mm -hmm. Why did the family members not, you know, notice anything? The man, Mr. Shu, is propping his wife's neck up with sheets at the funeral. Mm -hmm. She's in the casket. He's propping her wife, has sheets on either side. Did that not raise any red flags? You know, if I'm at a loved one's funeral and this is taking place, I'm probably going to ask some questions. Yeah. Well, and it seems weird, too. You know, there's no mention of a Mr. Heaster, so there's no mention of where the dad would mm -hmm. be. Um, maybe Mrs. Heaster was afraid of him, too. You know, if, if he's this big, imposing presence, uh, maybe she was just afraid of what he might do. Because it says he wouldn't let anybody else around the casket, right. which, is, which is really weird. Yeah. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on my this, I don't know, sociology, the customs of the time, the daughter is married off. The daughter is now the responsible responsibility of the husband. So maybe it was sort of like she's she belongs to him now. He's looking after her. Maybe there was an element of that. That's in, very in, possible. And like you said, it, it, there's no mention of the mom or the dad. And the mom probably isn't like, I'm going to tell this big brute of a guy. <laughs> <laughs> One thing's for sure, I would not have made it very long during this time no. period. <laughs> I was not meant to be no. alive during that time period. <laughs> okay, so obviously, Mr. Shu killed his wife. Yes. I mean, there, there's no question about that. First two wives died under mysterious circumstances. Um, I feel like he set the little boy up. He wanted the little boy to find his wife dead. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, because why else would he go there four more times after he'd already been said, oh, I'm busy today. Right. He shows up four more times like, hey, Mrs. Shu, really need you to come do these chores for her. Exactly. So that was intentional. Yep. So, and I don't know why he would do that to a little boy. Why yeah, would you? Because he was only 11 years old. Right. The little boy was only like 11 years old at the time. And so I don't think it w he was going to try to say that he killed him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't like he was trying to frame him, I don't think. It, he just needed a third-party witness. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that, that, yeah. So, but obviously, he's not a good guy. So he didn't care about making an 11-year-old. No. You know, because no, that's a horrific yeah. discovery. So, okay, obviously, first two died under mysterious circumstances. He's marrying a 15-year-old, so mm -hmm. there's another red flag. Yeah, the whole without the parents' knowledge mm -hmm. and sneaking her off in the night, um, that's that's a little odd, too. And, hey, props to the Reverend for standing up and being like, listen, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I want to go along with this. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with this. I, I do like the idea that the pastor was like, all right, I have been asked to do this wedding ceremony and I will do that. And then he uses the any objections moment. for That's, that's got to be a weird, like, I want to know how big of a pause did he wait yeah. for if it was like, are there any objections? I have one. Like, wait, wait a minute. I object. I object. Well, it's yeah. funny because from the way it sounds, there were no attendees. It was just the pastor, mm -hmm. yeah. Mr. You know, Mr. Shu and Zor Zon Zona. 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 Sorry, I got her name wrong. Zona. Um, and so... Yeah, it wasn't like there was like some ghostly figure going to pop up and be like, no, I love her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, like you said, there's a trail of blood that nobody wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. He dresses his wife in the highest stiff color, collar, um, put, wraps the scarf around her. So there's some other red flags. Won't let anybody near. He's holding her head. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's obvious. He, he's guilty. He did it. But now let's, 
you know, now let's get to the strange part, as if all of that's not strange. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get into okay. the ghostly part of it, okay. let's talk just for a minute about um, his ex-wives or his oh, his late okay. wives. Mm-hmm. So I actually read up on how they were supposed to have died. Mm-hmm. The first one supposedly fell from the top of a haystack and broke her neck. Uh, interesting. And the second one was supposedly helping him to repair the roof. And so he had like a string with a basket attached to it. And she was putting some kind of rock or shale in the basket. And he was hauling it up on top of the roof to put it on the roof, I guess. And the basket tipped over and the rocks fell on her head. Interesting. So... I was curious, though, like, when he moved into the new community, how much did they... Like, obviously, this came out after the fact. Right. After the third wife. But how much did they know beforehand? Because there's, there's no internet, there's no big-time connections unless you got a family member you visited. I'd, I'd be curious to know what they knew and at what point in time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, because, I mean, it seemed very fast. He pops in there in December, and by January, he's married this 15-year-old mm-hmm. kid. And um, I, I don't know how close the counties were, you know, and, and word of mouth, you know, if he if he long distances, if he lived in multiple places, and one wife was way over here, and then one was way over here, and then now he's moved to this third place that there's a lot of distance, it's kind of unlikely that anybody would have known, oh, hey, by the way, his first two wives died suspiciously. So, now let's get to the, uh, as if that wasn't strange enough, let's get to the strange part where um, Zona's mother says that she visited her in her dreams mm-hmm. and um, you know, and confessed the killing, you know, said that her husband killed her. Four nights? Yes. Yeah, four different four, visits. Four different visits. So, okay, I really hope that's true. I hope that she visited her and told the tale. But I don't think it's true. I don't think I'll, it's I'll true. be skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and I kind of wrote down, and the, the book that we got the majority of our information from is called The Greenbrier Ghost and Other Stories. And it's written by Dennis Dietz and published by the uh, Mountain Memories Books. So um, it's kind of a local local publishing thing. And, but the really interesting thing about the book is it has a lot of the direct words from the trial transcript in there. Mm-hmm. So let me read to you what Mrs. Heaster said about the trial or about what her daughter actually said to her about how she died. It says, he came that night from the shop and seemed angry. I told him supper was ready and he then began to chide me because I had prepared no meat. I replied, there was plenty bread and butter, applesauce, preserves, and other things that made a good supper. He flew into a rage, got up, and came toward me. When I raised up, he seized each side of my head with his hands and by a sudden wrench dislocated my neck. Interesting. So here's my question. If that's truly what her daughter's ghost told her, then why did it take the Dr. Knapp three days to check her neck to see if it was broken or not? Mm-hmm. Right. He, right. I wonder if he even looked at the body the first two days. He probably just agreed, like, yeah, sure, I'll put. It's on the list of things to do. Mm-hmm. And then probably by the third day, he actually looked at it and was like, oh, oh, this. So I, I wonder if he, like, I doubt he spent three days going through the 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 body. Mm-hmm. I bet it was more of like, 
yeah, I'll do that, but I'm not going to rush to it. Like yeah. It's, yeah. It's off the top of the list. Okay, here's my theory, and see what you think. Zona's mother is smarter than we think she is. Mm -hmm. She's smarter than we're giving her credit for. And I'm thinking maybe she picked up on all the clues. And maybe she saw, um, maybe she put two and two together and saw what he was doing with the support of the neck and the coffin. And mm -hmm. the fact that he was holding her head and not letting anybody near. Um, maybe she was figuring it out and she made up that her daughter was coming to her with this. And she made up a scenario that her daughter was speaking to her. But put in what she thought happened, how she thought it happened, mm -hmm. as if her daughter was coming and speaking to her. Well, I think that's a really good point. And we know that sometimes women that are in domestic violence situations, they, you know, they try to put on a good face, like nothing's going on, everything's fine. But sometimes they have one or two personal confidants and who would be more close to speak to, to your mom than exactly. your mom. So maybe Zona had mentioned to her mom before that he had been abusive to her mm -hmm. or cruel to her in some way. And so maybe her mom knew there was a history of this. And when she died suddenly in such a strange, unusual way, was like, okay, he did it. Because, I mean, we've all heard those kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And maybe in a fit of rage, he admitted to Zona that he broke his first wife's neck. And maybe um, Zona told that to her mother. It's very possible. And so she might have known something about that and then brought that forth into the story, mm -hmm. saying that her daughter was visiting her and gave the story that way. Mm-hmm. So, so many possibilities. I was going to go the angle that, and I don't have the terminology to do this because I'm not, I'm not in the medical field, but the mom was probably already suspicious of the husband. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even without knowing about the previous two uh, wives, she probably had something, a, a red flag was raised. Yes. And I wonder if it was some sort of like induced hallucination that, like, her subconscious kind of filled in the blank, mm -hmm. in, in the gaps to explain what happened to her daughter. Something like that. Because she's already predisposed to not like this guy. This happens. He's behaving very weird about not letting anybody look at, at her. And if maybe there was some sort of induced hallucination that was the daughter appearing to her. I, I like that. Because moms know. Moms always know. When you have someone around who's who's not good, mm -hmm. and they know, uh, it's like they have a sixth sense about it, and maybe she wanted to see her daughter so badly, you know, her, she wanted her daughter to come back to her one last time to build up on what the voice in the wall said, and maybe maybe that did happen. Maybe she did have a kind of inducing type thing that filled in the blanks for her. Well, I think that's very possible. So I mean, so many know, ways in in her grief. And frustration and anger over losing her child in such a horrific way. And, you know, that very well could have been a coping mechanism for her to, you know, feel like she was, her daughter was still with her and her presence was still there. So I, I totally agree with that. I think that's a very plausible explanation. Right. What about the mob getting together to... <laughs> You know, so never underestimate a community coming together. <laughs> uh, that, that is, like... I, 
I don't know because like one did was the family well known or did suddenly they just all decide to be a champion because it does seem odd that suddenly they would just filled with rage or anger yeah. to do that. And man, that sheriff must have been a really good speaker to him. Yeah. Talk him down. What kind of speech did he give? Yeah. I really don't want to do this, I'd, guys. I'd love to know how many elections he won. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. He, yes, he talked down the angry mob. And gave they gave up their rope. Like, that's, yeah. that's the detail I really enjoy is that they were like, yeah, we won't do this. Here's the rope. We'll be good little boys. And yeah. <clears throat> well, let's talk about how this testimony was admitted into oh, the yes. court and the trial system. Um, so I think it's funny that the prosecution was, or not the prosecution, but the defense was like, yeah, sure, go right ahead. Tell them a ghost told you all about it because they did not feel it would be believed or legitimate. And really that kind of backfired. Yeah, on. it really did. And I would be the same way if I was the defense. I'd be like, sure, bring that in here. Yeah. Um, bring it, Bring all the ghosts you want. Let's talk about it. Um, and, and it really did. It ended up not working in their favor. Mm-hmm. So probably not a good idea to admit that. Yeah. Well, how, how superstitious, like, was it a jury trial? Mm-hmm. It was a jury like, trial. Like, how, how superstitious do you think the members of the jury were and how, like, they probably thought it was totally legit? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, well, and it talked about how, you know, that Mrs. Heaster was very strong in her faith and that, like, she prayed for her daughter's spirit to come back to her. And when they, you know, quoted the Bible to her and she was like, yes, I know. And by the way, I'm not lying because this, this, and this happened. And she was just so, so set in her ways about it. I think that convinced the jury because we're like, you know, this is a, a good God-fearing woman. She's not going to stand up here on the, the stand and lie. Yeah. You know, if, if this didn't happen, she's not going to tell us that did. Hi listeners, today's episode touched on domestic violence. We want you to know that help is available if you or someone you know is dealing with domestic violence. Please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. And listeners, we would love to know what you think about today's story and any thoughts that you have about any of the aspects of this very long, very wild story. You can contact us via Facebook at Haunted Haulers. We are also on Instagram at Haunted Haulers. And you can even find us on Twitter at Haunted Haulers. We do have a website, www.hauntedhaulers.com. And you can email us at hauntedhaulers at gmail.com. Until next time, listeners, beware of things lurking in the shadows.